1 Corinthians 12. We are going verse by verse in a series called God's Plan for a Healthy Church. Study through both of these books, verse by verse. This is our habit. In particular, as we've come to this section, conduct in the church, really starting in chapter 9, last part of chapter 9, working on through chapter 10, all the way through chapter 14, is conduct in the church. Paul's talked about a lot of things as he's worked his way through this letter. Now he's really talking about what goes on in the church, and here we're talking about spiritual gifts, and first and, and new this morning for us, the unity of the Spirit. In John Donne's classic poem, he says this, No man is an island entire to himself, every man is a piece of continent, a part of the, of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind, therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. A poem you probably are familiar with, but in a dark way, he really captures this image of unity, the image of connection to one another, each individual part of a whole. And it really touches exactly what we're going to talk about as we move our way into this next section Paul's going to deal with here in the Corinthian church. It is the reality of the unity of the Spirit. Each believer is part of the whole body, and, and the use of the spiritual gifts each believer has really is just as vital as the various functions of the parts of the body and that body working together in harmony. And that, we're going to see, is actually the illustration Paul's going to use as we move into this next portion of Paul's letter. And of course, it doesn't always seem harmonious in the reality of the church. It sometimes seems like it's the town band playing for a Fourth of July celebration. I was reading a news article that said this. The band had finished a vigorous and not over-harmonious selection. As perspiring musicians sank to their seats after acknowledging the applause, the trombonist asked, what's the next number? The leader replied, the Washington Post March. Oh no, he gasped, that's what I just got through playing. And that's kind of how it goes in the church a lot of times, doesn't it? It kind of seems like it's not that harmonious and that the body's not working together that well. But uh, it can be. It can be great. And the Lord desires for it to be great. And as we understand who we are and what we have to offer, uh, that sound becomes much better, I think, in the years, uh, our ears, and certainly in the Lord's ears. But so Paul addresses the Corinthian church. It's really manifested itself, as we've seen over and over again, in selfishness and faction and preferences over and over. And he wants them to know, as he comes to this section, again, that God has another plan for how it's supposed to work. Now, we've kind of divided our, our time in the word here, particularly in this section, just like Paul has, and just kind of uh, what is his outline, we try to grasp that and, and, and not try to force our own outline in. But we've seen the test of the Spirit as we got the early part of this chapter, and then we've seen the gift of the, gifts of the Spirit, we just got through going through that last week. And now we're going to move into this next section that we've just entitled the Unity of the Spirit. It just seems like a, a, a natural change for Paul. So I'd like you to look, if you would, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, we're going to read all the way through verse 27, which is really the next section we'll, we'll take under consideration. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that around you in the chair that's in front of you, or just read in your copy. I'll give you some verse cues, and we can stay together. Verse 12 says this, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Verse 13. For by one Spirit... We're all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Verse 14, for the body is not one member, but many. Verse 15, if the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. Verse 16, and if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, 
I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? Verse 18, but now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. Verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? Verse 20, but now there are many members, but one body. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. Verse 23, and those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Verse 24, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Verse 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Verse 27, now you are Christ's body and individual members of it. Let's stop right there. Just to kind of sum up Paul, you can kind of see the direction he's going and you can kind of get the sense now that you've been with us long enough, get the sense of some of the issues that they're having, the honor that should be given that isn't, the, the preference of one another and all that kind of stuff. So Paul just kind of sums up, the church is the body of Christ, it's the habitation of God through the Spirit, it's, and in the way it ministers, actually representing the physical body of Christ on the earth. And we're going to look at all of that. It's very, it's amazing how Paul puts this together and how he describes the church in such a intimate way. The Holy Spirit is active in the church, as, we, as we've looked at, empowering the ministries of the redeemed, animating the body of Jesus on earth. That's Paul's summary. That's what we're going to look at today. Now, that's precisely what Paul says. Look at verse 12, if you would, and we'll begin to go through this. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also, he says, is Christ. Paul's point is, then, that it, it takes many different members to make up a body, and by that illustration, uh, inevitably, the members will have to differ from each other. And so Paul wants them to understand that, obviously, their differences don't affect the fact that there is a fundamental unity. In fact, it defines it, just like the body has as its, as its members, many different members, but def it is defined that way by being the body. So also, then, he says this amazing word, so also is Christ. Now, he doesn't say, so also is Christ's body. That's implied, doesn't it? Isn't it? So also, he says, is Christ. And this is not the thought, of course, of Christ as the head of the body, as we see in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. Paul's not talking about it this way. When he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. He is that, but this isn't Paul's emphasis here. Uh, there's a great illustration, I think, that ties both of these concepts together, Colossians 1, 18. And this is our habit. We just compare scripture with scripture so we can get the sense of where we need to be. Paul says to the Colossae, church in Colossae, he says this, Speaking of Christ, he says he is also head of the body, the church, so Jesus is that, and we understand that certainly, and some other things as well. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will, will come to have first place in everything. So he's a number of things, but he is the head, certainly, of the body. Verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, verse 20, and through him reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile, that's what you were, that's what you used to be. You used to be alienated, you used to be hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, 
in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So, true believers were reconciled to God by faith in Christ's substitutionary death as vicarious resurrection, and of which I, Paul says, was made a minister. So, now we're getting into the, into the heart of the thing that we're talking about here. We're talking about spiritual gifts. Paul says, listen, this church that was reconciled uh, to God through Christ is this active body. Christ is the head of it, certainly. Paul was made a minister to the church, he says. In other words, he was set in the church to use his spiritual gifts for the common good. That's what we've seen all the way through. Spiritual gifts are for the church, for the common good of the church, not to exalt the individual, but to make the church better. Paul says, I was made a minister to this church. My spiritual gifts are at work here. And then Paul says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body, which is what? Which is the church. All right, now we're getting into the same language Paul's using now in Corinthians. So, that, so at the beginning of the passage, Paul's the, Paul says Christ is the head. Here he says, as it relates to spiritual gifts and ministering, the church is Jesus' body. So the language is changing there. Then Paul says, in the difficulty of ministry, he is filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. So Paul talks about his ministry here, his ministry in Christ's body. He says, I fill up in what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. In, in other words, he says, I'm fitting right in with Jesus' body, which is what I'm a part of as I use my spiritual gifts, see? Christ is the head, but we're also part of the body of Christ. And I'm filling that up, I'm filling what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, because Jesus was afflicted, and Paul finds that affliction describes his efforts best. As you're working in the body, afflictions will describe your efforts best, okay? As you give yourself away, if you find that life is pretty easy and not a whole lot of difficulties coming your way and things are going really smoothly, you'll probably find that you're probably not intricately involved inside the body of Christ, okay? But inside the body of Christ, afflictions come, difficulty happens, and so Paul says, I fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. I've got some scars, in other words, and so I just fit right in with Christ. Verse 25, of this church I was made a minister, there's the same language again, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. That's exactly how we define spiritual gifts, isn't it? Every spiritual gift makes you a steward of that spiritual gift. It makes you a debtor to everybody else inside the body because you have a spiritual gift that's supposed to be used. So Paul says, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me. And what's all spiritual gifts' final purpose? Well, the common good, what's Paul say? bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. So when Paul says then in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for even as, as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. He's really revealing the Holy Spirit's favorite concept, the believer is in Christ. The believer's position is part of the body. So since all believers are in Christ, they are one body, and there are many parts of the human body, Christ's human body, and as he has explained, there are varieties of gifts. At the first part of this chapter, there are varieties of ministries, there are varieties of effects. Though there are many parts to the church, and like the body which you have and which you are in the church, there's both unity and diversity. Now, that's kind of a summary of some of the things we've talked about. Now, if you've not caught up with that, we've laid a lot of groundwork. I'm not going to go back and go over that again. That's all online. You can check out uh, all that previous study. But a fragmented, factional, arrogant church like Corinth isn't going to accept at face value, that everyone has a different role in the body and all are necessary and all are equally important because that's precisely the problem they've been having all along. 
they evaluate somebody is not that important and, and not that, you know, we don't need them, it's not that special, what we're doing is very special, you know, the, the, the miracle gifts, the sign gifts, those were the ones they were exalting, that's the ones that are most important, that's what we need the most, so that's why Paul has to write this whole section in the letter. So obviously they're not going to just take Paul's word for it, hey, everybody's equal, everybody's needed, whatever, and so Paul's going to start supporting what he has to say. Paul knows how to bring those arguments to bear, and so that's what he's going to do. So, so uh, they're thinking the opposite of what Paul's saying. So Paul begins to explain how this marvelous plan of God came to be. So he says in verse 13, then, look there in your copy, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now, pause right there. As we did with some of the gifts, particularly the temporary sign gifts, I want to take some time with this verse. Because this verse has been completely misused by some. It has become a very confusing issue among believers, and I want to compare Scripture with Scripture and let you see the simplicity of this verse and what it means uh, by kind of cross-referencing Scripture and make sure that we're making, if you will, a straight cut. E baptizomen, baptized, the Greek verb, eris, passive, indicative. Very simply, in a set time in the past, you were baptized, and that is your present condition, and it carries on with future ramifications, okay? Very simple. Back, back in the past, you were baptized. And so the use of the word begins to set the stage for the change Paul expects in their attitude towards spiritual gifts. And the question is, what does Paul mean by baptize? That's really the question. That's what we're going to bring to bear here in just a minute. And we'll get to that shortly. But in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, Paul says it this way. He says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither is there slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ. It sounds very similar to what he just got through saying to the church in Corinth. Now the word baptized into Christ is synonymous for what? What is baptized into Christ synonymous with, beloved? Salvation. Very good. That's, it's, just, it's just obvious from the context, isn't it? Okay, salvation is being clothed with Christ and all in one in Christ, correct? That's easy to see. We're going to come back to this passage in just a minute and really break it down because this is very important for us to understand. Now, in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul explains it this way. Now, we went through this verse very carefully when we went verse by verse through Romans. But just as a review, in verse 3 he says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, once again, this is a very simple understanding of the passage, okay? Being baptized into Christ is synonymous with what? Salvation. And if you're saved, then you've been baptized into his death. So you share in his death benefit, which is you'll never die again. It's just very straightforward, isn't it? You share in that death benefit. You were baptized into his death. You got credit for Adam's sin, okay? Although you weren't there, although you proved that you had you have credit for Adam's sin because you sin on a regular basis, so you show that's the case. And to balance that out, when you come to faith in Christ, you get credit for the death that Christ died. And that's just really straightforward, very very fundamental to an understanding of who you are in Christ. Okay, so you get benefit in Christ's death; you share in His death benefit, never to die again. And you've been baptized or united, Paul says, with His resurrected life, so you get benefit there, don't you? That you'll never die again, and you're resurrected. A new person came out of, the, out of this uh, united with Christ. The old guy died, the new guy rose, and that's your identity. And once again, tense voice and verb, uh, tense, case tense and voice of the verbs indicate a past event that has it's a new reality for you and continued benefit for the future. This happened in the past at salvation. 
Now, earlier in the letter, Paul appealed to baptism into Christ as pointing the Corinthians away from factions and rivalries and all that. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so Paul is explaining an understanding of baptism, which is going to have water in the background. It's the illustration. People know what baptism looks like, going down and coming up, but it's going to be spiritual in nature. So, first point of clarification, what does Paul mean by being baptized? And we've seen before, the passage is using water baptism as an illustration to help the Corinthian believers understand their spiritual, a spiritual truth. We saw the same thing in Romans chapter 6. When we looked at Romans 6, the immersion in physical water is in the background. They understand that concept, but these passages are not speaking about being immersed in physical water. In these passages, Paul is speaking about being immersed spiritually. Straightforward understanding that Paul wants to get across is that every believer has been immersed by Christ into the same spirit and has the same unity with Christ, and that group of believers comprises his body. It's a spiritual identity of every believer. They're brought into this critical relationship with Christ. In Romans, it's to release the believer from the power of sin, because chapter 6 goes on and talks about knowing and reckoning and yielding. And don't present your members as to works of righteousness, but to, work, to works of unrighteousness, but to works of righteousness. Don't let your flesh rule you like a king and all that. Why? Because you died to Christ and you rose. And so you were baptized spiritually into Christ, and that releases you from the power of sin. See. In Corinthians, it's to empower the believer to serve spiritual gifts. You've been united together with Christ. You're part of his spiritual body. And you have then empowerment to do this work that he has given you to do. In other places, it's to shape the believer into Christ-likeness through sanctification. So there's lots of reasons why Paul uses this, and other New Testament writers use this illustration to help us understand this spiritual concept, immersed spiritually, a spiritual identity of every believer. Now, water baptism is there. We're not diminishing it. It's very important. We understand it. It's one of the ordinances we practice. It is the, the activity of the faithful. You, you come to faith in Christ and you follow in baptism and indicate physically what has actually happened spiritually. So the word means to submerge as somebody would to be placed under the water in the ordinance of water baptism. So here they're being submerged into Christ's body as Christ immerses them through the Holy Spirit into his body, the church. And Paul will go on to explain that each believer has a new oneness, a new union, if you will, with Christ with every other believer. Now just to kind of shore this up for you, just one illustration because we could talk about this for several weeks. But Galatians chapter 3, I want to come back here. This is very important, okay? Just kind of get this spiritual, the spiritual impact of this, uh, of the type of baptism we're talking about. And we're going to get back to the trouble that the church has, uh, kind of parsing this out. Galatians 3, 26 through 28. Verse 26 says this, for you, were all sons of, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. Now, what's a son of, what's a son of God, beloved? That is a, a believer. Okay, that's someone who's come to faith in Christ. You're a son of God. I think that's very common knowledge. We understand that to be true. Okay? How did you become a son of God? What's the second part of it? For you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's just, just, very, just very obvious, right? You're all sons of God. So speaking to, who's the audience? Believers. You came to be a son of God by faith in Christ. Okay, just very, very fundamental. Now look at the parallel statement. Okay? For all of you who were baptized into Christ have, been, have clothed yourself with Christ. Now, what is a person who's been baptized into Christ? They are a? They are a believer, okay? What is a person who's been clothed with Christ? They are a? 
believer. Okay, so once again, just parallel statements. Now, here's, here's a question for you just to begin to get your mind working around this. Can you be baptized into Christ and not be a son of God? No. Okay. Can you be a son of God and not be baptized into Christ? Not according to this verse, right? Because they're in parallel, are they not? For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ and clothed yourself with Christ. It's just part and parcel of being a believer. All those are true, correct? And then verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, nor is there slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're one in Christ, what are you? You're a believer. If you're one in Christ, you are baptized into Christ. If you're one of Christ, you are, you've closed yourself with Christ. If you're one in Christ, you are a son of God. If you're one in Christ, you have expressed faith in Christ for that actual, actuality in your life, for the reality, okay? So these are all connected to each other, very important that they're connected, and the, the, the tenses of these verbs are very important, that this is a past action that continues to have a present reality in your life and continue results, okay? You have been then submerged into Christ, which is a complete change of spiritual environment. That's the idea. And it calls on water baptism as an example. When you go under the water, that's a whole lot different than it was when you were in the air. Okay? A different spiritual environment. And you've been clothed in Christ, which is a complete change of appearance, and it calls on getting dressed, and that's an example everybody knows. Just like going under the water is an example everyone knows. So Paul just uses them to illustrate the spiritual reality of the new life in Christ. And all those are used in parallel, so there's no confusion in the Galatian church. And Paul makes it clear that these parallel statements are past events already occurred, and it's part of their continued manifestation as being one in Christ. It's just very straightforward, okay? Now, for a second point of clarification, I think it's important to point out that we don't see in our text, or in the illustrations I gave you, or in any part of the scripture, the words, baptism of the Holy Spirit, as if the Holy Spirit is doing the baptizing. That isn't anywhere in the, in the scriptures. I just gave you a whole bunch of illustrations. We could go through a whole bunch more, but you're never going to find a place in the scriptures. And I'm going to give you quite a few more here in just a minute where you have a baptism with the Holy Spirit doing the baptizing. In fact, you won't, find, you won't find the Holy Spirit doing the baptizing anywhere, okay? And I'd like to give you a few examples just so you can see this simplicity and the consistency of the wording here because the phrase baptism of or baptism by the Holy Spirit is closely connected with the charismatic movement and the temporary sign miraculous gift movement that's very popular today. And this phrase has been misused to construe a situation which people are supposed to wait for that's false and misleading. And so as we went through some of these sign gifts, and I want to make sure we clarified that they were temporary sign gifts and why they were, I want to clarify this section here so we can move on and have that foundation. And what we don't see is anywhere in the scriptures, baptism where the Holy Spirit is doing the baptizing, or that we're supposed to wait for anything, or that something still stands in the future from someone who's a believer. Because didn't we just see in Galatians 3.26, you're called the Son of God, right? Because you had faith in Jesus Christ. And you're also called baptized into Christ, and clothed with Christ, and one in Christ. And those are all past tense events, all occurred at the moment of salvation. Now, just to lay some groundwork, and these things are just obvious, but we should see them anyway. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, John the Baptist is speaking. And he says this, he says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, there's a great illustration for everyone to see in the New Testament. What was John doing? He was baptizing, and what were they doing? They were going under the water, declaring this new spiritual environment in their life, which was what? An environment of repentance, okay? A desire to confess, a desire to be sorry for, 
You indicated that as John baptized, that that's what was the case. Okay, now we're going to see some believers in Acts 19, and that's what they'd experienced. Now, were they saved? No. And so had they received the Holy Spirit? No. And so Paul's going to come and do all that kind of stuff, okay? So you can't say to that, oh, well, well, they had to wait for it, but, you know, we have a whole different environment going on, and we talked about that last time, so we'll go back through that again. But here's the thing. Paul says, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So who's going to do the baptizing? Jesus, Okay. It's just really straightforward, is it not? And, and not to be redundant, okay? And perhaps if, if you already understand this, this is going to be redundant for you. But I want you to see this. This is very important because this is a clarification because I just heard this on the radio last Tuesday, okay? So this is active teaching going on in the Lynchburg area, okay? And so it was very appropriate that I was already in this passage. Like, well, that's just confirmation we need to go through this. So John chapter 1, verse 32, Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist's ministry. And here's what he says. He says, John testified saying... I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So what's the situation? Well, John the Baptist is instructed to baptize Jesus. On whom did the Spirit descend like a dove? Jesus. John baptized Jesus with water. Who did he say would baptize into the Holy Spirit? Jesus. Okay? Here again, baptizing with the Holy Spirit is synonymous with what? What is it? It's salvation. Okay? I mean, let's just be clear. Baptizing with the Holy Spirit, we just saw that in Galatians, is parallel to being clothed in Christ, is parallel to, to being a son of God. Okay? It's all parallel. Okay? So, we're just kind of going, just kind of reaffirming this, and I don't want to keep hammering on it. I'll just give you a couple more. People say, well, what about, you know, what about Acts and what about Pentecost? Okay, what about that? All right, Acts chapter 2, verse you know, 32 and 33. Peter's explaining the gift of tongues and, and that they were not drunk because these people, they're just drunk and, and we don't know what's going on. Peter says, they're not drunk, okay? They didn't do this on their own. He says this, this Jesus God raised up again to which we were all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. So, who poured out the Spirit so that the gospel could go out? The Jews would have a sign. The message and the messenger would be verified. And we looked at all of that. The reason for the tongues is a sign to the Jews that the messenger and messenger and the message would be verified. Who poured all that out? Jesus did. Okay? Was that the Holy Spirit's initiative to baptize and bring some second work? No. It was a promise that was going to occur. Scriptures foretold it. Joel 2 said it was going to happen. And then here it comes. Okay? Now, well, Paul says then, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, he says this, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. How many, here's the thing, okay, how many believers have been, past tense, baptized into one body? How many? All of them, okay? And who does the baptizing in every example we looked at? Jesus does. How many believers were made to drink of one spirit? All of them. And who poured out the spirit, according to the passage we just read in Acts? Jesus did. Now, here's some questions. Is it possible to be saved and not be part of the body of Christ? No. Is it possible to be saved and not be baptized into Christ? Come on. 
No, absolutely not. Is it possible to be saved and not to be made to drink of one spirit? No. Is it possible to be saved and not be baptized by one spirit? Not according to what we've looked at a dozen passages now. They're all very consistent in their language. In every case, who's the baptizer? Jesus is. And you're getting the right answer every time because it's just that straightforward, beloved. Okay? Because any other approach isn't consistent with what the Word of God says. Now, if this is new to you, or you've had a different doctrinal background than the one we're teaching, you may just be getting a grasp on this. So I want to look at one more illustration about who pours and who baptizes and what it means. And if you use more than one passage, it just all becomes very clear and very straightforward. I'd like you to turn, if you would, to John chapter 4. We've got a few minutes, so look there with me. This is a very interesting passage. I think you'll enjoy reading this. And, and once again, as Jesus is speaking and he's interacting with this person, the consistent doctrine is there. and We just kind of see it there in the background, just ringing through, okay? So John chapter 4, verse 7, you can hold your finger there in 1 Corinthians 13, or 12, we'll be back. So John chapter 4, verse 7, I'd like you to see something. It's a passage you're familiar with, it's the Samaritan woman at the well. Verse 7 says this, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse 9, therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given to you living water. Now stop right there. What was Jesus offering the Samaritan woman? Salvation. Okay, it's just, it's obvious, okay? We understand that to be the case, all right? Now, does she know that he's offering her salvation yet? No. She still thinks he's talking about something to drink, and now he's talking about something weird like living water, and what in the world does that mean, okay? Now look at verse 11. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then are you going to get living water? So she's physically dry, she's thirsty, she wants to meet that need. Jesus knows she's spiritually dry, and he wants to meet that need. And that's what he's talking about now. So now in verse 13, Jesus is going to explain it to her. I answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's stop right there. General principles we can pull out. When someone recognizes the spiritual need and seeks the water of salvation from Jesus, he will what? Pour it out, and they'll become a spring of living water so that others can be satisfied. It's just really this, I mean, you just can't come away with another understanding besides that. Jesus is offering salvation. He's saying, you drink of the spiritual water, and you're going to be satisfied, and you're going to become a well yourself. The living water salvation is just obvious, and everyone who's saved has it and becomes a spring themselves. Now, Look forward, if you will, to John 7, 37. Now, this is the passage that last Tuesday someone was using to talk about the spring of water that we're waiting for as the Holy Spirit baptizes. This is going to become, you're going to become this flood of water coming out. You know, you're just dripping right now, but you can become a flood when you wait on the, this baptism of the Holy Spirit that's supposed to come after salvation, okay? And, um, you know, it does no good to shout at the radio. So, look at verse 37. Now, on the last day of the great day of the feast. Now, just pause right there. I'm just going to set the stage. Now, according to John 7, 1, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booze, or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
So one of the, the three major feasts they're supposed to go to Jerusalem and celebrate. It was given to help the Jews remember their trek in the wilderness. Now you know this. It's how they, it's when, and when they were in the wilderness, they lived in booths, which that's why they call it the Feast of Booths. They lived in branches. They made shelter. So as they stopped in the desert, they'd found something. You know, you know how it would be if you've camped. Uh, you make something to lean to, whatever it is, if you're just kind of rough camping. Uh, my boys and I used to do this when we lived in New York. Just, you know, we'd get on an island. All right, got to make some shelter. Now you got to make a fire. Just kind of, like, you, you understand, you're living, you're living outside. You're, you're not, there's not a house. So they, they would celebrate this by they would make shelters outside. And they would live outside during, during the, uh, uh, this feast time. And it celebrates how God provided for them in the wilderness, things like food and water and kept their clothes and shoes from wearing out, and things like that, all these things you know. And this is what they would celebrate. And on the last day, the high priest would typically take water in a pitcher and he would pour it out to symbolize God's provision for them, his salvation, if you will, in the wilderness. He saved them from Egypt. Uh, that's, and we, we see that that represents sin. He saved them from death in the wilderness. And all of that just pointed forward, of course, to Jesus. But he saved them from that. So Jesus is here at the, at the feast day. The priest takes the water, he pours it out, and Jesus stands and he cries out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from him, his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. So, what's Jesus offering here? Now, the priest is pouring out water on the ground as an offering to the Lord and as a remembrance of the Lord's provision in the desert. What's Jesus offering? Salvation. How do we know that? Well, come to me and drink equals he who believes in me. The very next, the very next phrase, right? He who gives the water of salvation is Jesus. And who gets it? Everyone who believes. It's just really straightforward, right? It's just one right after another. It wasn't hard to understand for everybody who was there. Everybody understood immediately. You know, Jesus doesn't have a pitcher. He's standing up saying, come to me and drink. This is a spiritual offering, okay? It's illustrated by drinking living water. People would understand that. Just like the woman at the well, Samaritan woman, she initially, she's like, what, where are you going to get this living water? It's a spiritual offering, isn't it? It's an offer for salvation. Come. Everyone who's thirsty, everyone who sees their real need, just like we saw in John 4. And what happens to everyone who believes? They become a spring of living water. Everyone from the moment of salvation. As soon as you come to faith, you receive. The Lord has poured into you and it comes out of you, right? That's what it appears to say. Because in case it's unclear, Jesus connects the dots then. Catch this. Look at verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, that's, that just makes it completely connected for us, okay? Again, who gets the Holy Spirit? Those who come to the water of salvation. Those who believe in Jesus. How much of the Spirit do they get? All of it. How do we know that? Because verse 38 says, rivers of living water will flow to those who drink, to those who believe, to those who are saved. Okay? Who's in charge of giving the Spirit? Jesus, the same one who's in charge of baptizing with the Spirit and in charge of baptizing you into Christ and in charge of placing you through that baptism into his body, which is the church. Same one, same idea, spiritual dynamic, okay? Is there any other condition that believers are waiting on? According to this, no. The one condition, though, at the onset of the church that Jesus told them was still outstanding was his glorification. Is he glorified? Yes. So are we waiting on any other condition? So what's left to wait on? Nothing. Would scripture seem to indicate that we should be waiting for an experience of baptism performed by the Holy Spirit? No. Would it seem to indicate that anything is missing from our salvation at the point of salvation? Not according to what 15 passages we've read so far. 
It's very straightforward when you compare Scripture with Scripture. So we go back to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It's important to clarify that there is no command in Scripture for the Holy Spirit to baptize you. There's no command to wait for a second work of the Holy Spirit. We can see that, and we've just barely scratched the surface. All the work was done by Jesus at salvation, and then everything that you were, your need, you were needed to have, you were provided. The believer has everything they need to, and is fully equipped. You have the Holy Spirit. You've been baptized by the Holy Spirit into, by, by Christ, through the Holy Spirit into Christ's body. You have all the water that's supposed to flow out. Every illustration is already fulfilled. It's already past tense. It's your present reality. It carries on into the future. So in verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look back there if you would. <clears throat> For by one spirit we were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. So Jesus says, listen, by one spirit you were all baptized into one body. You've already received that baptism of the Holy Spirit. You've already received that. Jesus has done it. He does the baptizing. He does the giving of the water. He does all of that, okay? There's no differentiation between ethnicity, ethnicity, there's no differentiation between your social status, you're not better or greater because you're a Jew and less because you're a Gentile, okay, you're not greater uh, and more, uh, you're not less important to the body because you're a slave, the gifts you have are necessary to the body, you're not more important to the body if you're wealthy and have status, you know, the gifts you have are necessary to the body. Because they were already problems with that during communion. Remember, they were uh, wealthy were going ahead and eating on their own. They didn't really care. The, uh, the slaves would come late. There wasn't anything left to eat. And, and Paul, uh, Paul uh, corrected all that action. So there's already this action in their mind, this thought in their mind that, you know, my status, my gift, whatever must be better, and yours is not that important. And Paul's like, listen, you all received this baptism. Christ baptized you into his body. You've been baptized into his death. You've been clothed with Christ. All that is all true about you. You've received the water, and you are a flood, a spring of water. You're all made to drink of one spirit. Everyone who's born again all drank from the water that Jesus offered. There's supposed to be a unity that really transcends all human distinction. And it is only as there is an activity of the spirit that baptism has meaning. See, made to drink. Potizo, it's, it's aorist passive indicative. You were all made to drink again, of one spirit. Once again, every believer acted on in the past. Continuing results now, a word that has to do with irrigating or a watering in crops to allow them to flourish. So a well-watered field, if you will. You all made to drink of one spirit. You all well-watered with the spirit. Everybody, back in the past, when you came to faith, that was your reality. That became who you are. So according to this passage then, are you required to wait around until the Holy Spirit decides to swoop down when you're spiritual enough and really get the water going? I would say no. And then you really start the work flowing out of your life. You know, when, you, when you're really at the point where you really have the faith, right? That, at that point, you're really going to start making an impact because you have enough faith and the Lord's going to swoop down and he's going to baptize, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to baptize you and then, then you're going to have this flood coming out of you and, and all of a sudden the ministry's turned on. Once you have enough faith and you believe enough, uh, then you'll be all God wants you to be. Do we see that anywhere? No, of course we don't. We don't see that anywhere at all. Paul said the Holy Spirit has entered the innermost being, and it's the same Spirit that has done this in all of them at salvation. And what Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, we've seen this before, he says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. He says be filled with the Spirit, he isn't speaking of the Holy Spirit's indwelling because every believer has it at salvation. He isn't speaking of Christ baptizing into the Spirit to place us in the body and empower spiritual gifts because, as we've seen, that happened at salvation. He isn't waiting for this baptism by Christ to become part of his body. That's already been done. He isn't talking about that, see? Power 
and effectiveness in ministry don't come from some second work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has already, you've been already a part of the Spirit by Christ, see. Power and effectiveness in ministry don't come from some second work. You're not waiting for something else to come. They come from consistently living under the influence of the Spirit, as this passage tells us, as opposed to being under the control of drink, which is the opposite direction you want to go, he says. You want to be in control by the Holy Spirit, to be living under the influence of the Word of God in obedience to what it says. And the symptoms then will look like, in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So that's what it looks like. You, you want to have the power, and people are saying, well, you've got to have the second work of the Holy Spirit. No, you've had all the Holy Spirit you're going to get. You've been baptized into his body. You've been clothed in Christ. Uh, you've been immersed into him. All of that. You've been baptized into his death, raised according to his resurrection. All that's true for you already. So why am I living a powerless life? I need this holy second work of the Holy Spirit. No, you're living a powerless life because you're not, being, allowing to be, you're not bringing your mind into subjection to what the Word of God says and walking in that way, see? You know, Colossians 3.16 is a great parallel passage, and I say this a lot. Um, it's one of my favorite passages. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Listen, beloved, you know, we see the same symptoms in both in a spirit-controlled life, don't we? We see one who has um, being filled with the Spirit, Walking in such a manner, effectiveness in such a manner, it comes from consistently living under the influence of the Spirit. We see that really described for us in Colossians 3.16, which just means let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. And we see the same symptoms for both. The spiritual control of life, which is a life of obedience to the revealed word, which doesn't quench the work of the Spirit. See, It's letting this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, from Paul's letter to the Philippians. In his letter to the Galatians. He shows that it's, you know, really the word of God being active, lived out, brings the power of the Spirit to the fore. We see it illustrated by walking in Galatians 5, 16. But I say, here's what Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. So we see, be filled with the Spirit. We see, let the word of Christ dwell in you. We see, walk by the Spirit. See, all these things describing your mind being brought in subjection. See, but I say, walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. So in case you're wondering if you're walking in the Spirit or filled by the Spirit, in case you're wondering whether or not you're letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. So if that's, if that's what's being manifest, then you may be baptized into Christ, you may be clothed with Christ, you may uh, have a relationship with Christ, but you're not being filled by the Spirit, you're not, being, you're not walking according to the Spirit, you're not letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, you're going to see some of these things. Even believers can see these things manifested in their life. If, that become, if that's the habit of your life, of course, Paul's very clear 
things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You might even be saved if that's the case with your life. The thing about being filled with the Spirit, the thing about having the power to do the work of the ministry, the thing about having fruit from it is dying to self, beloved. It's pursuing pure lives. It's continually confessing known sins, living in such a way that you're consciously aware of the presence of Jesus in the body that you've been baptized into. That is the issue. That's where power comes in the Christian walk, see, of being his body, of being his hands, of being his feet, of being his lips. And then, you know, and when that's going on, what will be visible as seen in verse 22? But the fruit of the Spirit then is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and self-control against such things. There is no law. Now those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. That's how to walk in the power of the Spirit. See, it's not waiting for some second work of the Holy Spirit, which isn't going to come because you've already had everything you're going to get. See, and all the power is all there, and the and the river of living water is there. See, you've been clothed in Christ, baptized into Christ, all of that. You're a son of God. This is all true. See, if you know Christ as your Savior, you're not waiting for some second work somehow that that's going to turn the switch and now you'll be powerful. If you want to live a life that's a, that is effective for the kingdom, then these are the things you've got to do. See. That mind has to be brought into subjection. Renew that mind, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Not be conformed or stamped in the image again of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How's that happen, beloved? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. It's not, it's not complex. It's a matter of obedience, isn't it? It's a matter of obedience. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now let's wrap up our thoughts this morning because we're out of time. Verse 12, Romans 12, or, or 1 Corinthians 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. That's your reality. Okay? You have been, those things have for by one spirit, verse 13, this is, this is you. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That's a passive event, your present reality, and continuing results. You've been baptized in the spirit. Whether Jew, Greek, slave, free, you were all made to drink of one spirit. That's you. Fullness of the spirit has been given to you to drink, and it has then become a well that comes out of you. Just like Jesus said would happen in John chapter 4, just like he showed would happen in John chapter 7 just like John the Baptist said was going to happen, okay? It's, that's your reality. He makes it clear to the church in Corinth. At salvation, all believers were immersed by Christ into one spirit and drank of one spirit and so became members of his body, his assembly, all of them. And as we saw throughout the New Testament, the spirit is not the one who does the baptizing. He is the actual water into which believers were plunged and from which each drank. Consequently, each member has a manifestation of the Spirit and gifts which are now expressed in each person. That's what Paul's addressing. He wants to make sure they're on an even keel here. Okay? Don't think somehow you've got some huge work of the Spirit nobody else got. Okay? Everybody drank. Everybody was baptized by Christ into one body. And the Corinthians had everything all backwards, see? They believed the so-called more spiritual gifts like tongue speaking and miracles were evidence of a greater portion of the Spirit. No, says Paul. All received the Spirit in full. Each one will manifest it according to his faith. And the gifts will be different. And as we saw at the beginning of this chapter, the ministries will be different. And the outcomes will be different. Why? Because even people with similar spiritual gifts are going to have a different way that that's going to be applied in ministry because of, of the faith, the measure of faith, Romans says, that you have, Romans 12. 
And some of the ones that they thought were so great are going to be shown to be not that important. And the ones they thought weren't that important are going to be shown to be indispensable. And they're all, Paul's going to tell them, from one source. And you can verify the one source by whether Jesus is exalted or man is exalted. And it won't resemble, Paul says, anything that was done in pagan temples. So just get that out of your mind now. That, Paul, sets the stage now for the unity of the Spirit. Here's the spiritual gifts, and here's how they're going to work. And don't think you've got some extra measure, or you're waiting for some outpouring or whatever. You were all baptized. You were all made to drink. And you all have spiritual gifts. And you're all part of Christ's body. And some of the ones you think are so great aren't that great. And some of the ones you don't think are that important, they're indispensable. And so Paul's going to make this very clear then to the church. Help them to begin to treat one another as they're supposed to treat one another. And function in a very healthy body way that they haven't been functioning before. All right? Let's bow. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Let the Holy Spirit begin to do his work as we understand these things. I know that this was more of a, a doctrine. And... Um, you know, as I've said before, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness really is how the Word of God applies itself to us. And sometimes it's more teaching, which is doctrine, and sometimes it's more instruction, sometimes more correction. And so uh, this is more doctrine, so I hope uh, it was beneficial and blessing to you. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your Word. We always thank you for that. We love your Word. You've magnified it equal to your own name. It's important. What it says is important. How it says it is important. We don't get to make up ways that... Uh, and and, and uh, understanding of what it says. We have to cut it carefully, you tell us in Timothy. Make a careful cut. We might not be ashamed. How we can avoid being ashamed using your word and making sure that it actually does say what it, we think it says by comparing scripture with scripture. So Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to work. Uh, he is the tutor for us to help us understand and bring conviction and bring uh, clarity for our minds. Thank you that uh, you have given us your spirit in full. Thank you that we're not waiting for some other thing somehow. If we can be spiritual enough, good enough, or have enough faith, somehow we'll get an outpouring in addition. You've given us all that we need. You've fully equipped us for every good work. And every believer is just as integral uh, to the body as any other. Lord, I pray that you'll just get that in our mind. That those, uh, even those who perhaps are sitting out there thinking, I don't have much to offer, to realize they have so much. And functioning without them in the ministry of the kingdom is like having part of our body cut off there's no function there we get used to functioning without it but it isn't how you designed it so bring them in and help the rest of us if we're involved to serve in the ways that Romans tells us with a fervency of spirit and a desire and an ownership really of the ministry that we can pour ourselves into it and see people discipled and growing and Lord I pray that you'll show, continue to give us fruit thank you for our student ministries and our children's ministries that are showing much fruit of, of, uh, of growth and our adult ministries with so many small groups and Bible studies going on. Lord, we're so grateful that you just do your work here. Pray that you continue to do that. For those who are traveling today, for many of our, many of our families who are out and about doing these things on this uh, really first weekend of summer, we thank you for them. I pray that you'll protect them as they, uh, as they travel. Lord, for our graduates who are entering perhaps into a new realm of life, thank you for uh, your leadership all the way up to now and your provision and then now your step-by-step -step leadership and where you would have them to serve. And if, if it's not a ministry position, where you would have them work so that they can serve you uh, in a very uh, in a very wholesome, generous, fully committed way because you provided for all their needs. Help them to seek you first in your kingdom and all the things that they need will be added. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.
just a few things really quickly and then we're going to have our greet our guests so make sure beloved if you're a regular attender look around find new faces make sure you tell them hello make sure you help them fill out a guest card there's no there's